And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome, I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Our special guest is the man Forbes magazine calls the Steve Jobs of wine, world-renowned winemaker Paul Hobbs. Paul has twice been named Wine Personality of the Year by Robert Parker of The Wine Advocate. Over his 40-plus year career, he has received more than 10 100-point scores, a rare feat that places him in the top echelon of the world's winemakers. A sought-after consultant to 100 wineries over the years, he is recognized across the globe for breaking with tradition and forging new paths in the pursuit of excellence. In 1979, fresh out of UC Davis, he was appointed a member of the inaugural Opus One winemaking team, joint venture between Robert Mondavi and Mouton Rothschild of Bordeaux. Today, Paul is owner and vintner for eight wineries on four continents, Paul Hobbs, Crossbarn, and Hobbs in California, Hillican Hobbs in upstate New York, Cobos in Argentina, Crocus in Cahors, France, Yakubian Hobbs in Armenia, and Alvarado's Hobbs in Galicia, Spain. Welcome, Paul, and please feel free to correct my pronunciation if I goofed up on any of those wineries. I wouldn't want that to happen. Dan, you hit them all perfectly. Oh, Thank you very great. much. Well, it's 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 great to have you. So, so Paul, you grew up on a farm in upstate New York with a big family, no alcohol allowed in the house. So you really didn't have any exposure to wine growing up. But one day, your father arrives home with, a, I think it was a brown paper bag. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, well, that, that was, uh, I was around 16 years old, January 1969, a winter's night, quite cold. And my father appeared at the family table with a tray of Dixie cups with a yellow-orange liquid inside, which he asked us, uh, passed around the table and asked us to, to uh to describe what we tasted inside. And my mother was the most effusive of all of us, saying it's the best juice she'd ever tasted. Little did any of us know that my father had gone up to Buffalo to get expert advice on how to put wine on the family table without his wife's radar detecting it. <laughs> and uh, but the wine turned out to be, after my father felt the coast was clear, he, he brought out the evidence, a 1962 Chateau Ikem. And um, that was an epiphany for me. <laughs> well, actually, what happened after that wasn't good, particularly because uh, that was uh, a meltdown. My mother was very upset with my father, <laughs> and I was defending my father. That was not a good situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of like, you know, if your first exposure to art was a Rembrandt, uh, that that was a Chateau Yakim 62. That's, pr that's pretty amazing. So you went off to Notre Dame. You majored in pre-med. You were accepted to med school. But there, an important mentor came into your life, a priest. Uh, tell me how he, I guess, working with your father changed your life's course. Well, curiously, you know, uh, that was Father McGrath. And, uh, you know, after three and a half years of 
pre-medical studies, I decided to take any plant courses the university offered the final semester of my senior year. And Father McGrath uh, taught botany at the university, but he also was an avid photographer. So he had a he had a photography lab. He was a, a man of many talents. And, and uh, in addition to that, he had worked as a winemaker, as I understood, under Brother Timothy at the Novitiate Napa Valley. So he had a wine appreciation course. That, that the reason my, and I'm gonna just step back here a moment. The reason my father brought wine to the family table and risked uh, the wrath of my mother uh, was because he wanted to convert some of our apple orchards to vineyards. And he had been going to the New York, central New York Finger Lakes district and meeting with some of the pioneers of that region. Like for example, Dr. Constantine Frank and Herman Wiemer and they convinced him, my father, to plant vineyards. And my father thought I would be the person to do that. At any rate, when I, back at Notre Dame, I had told Father McGrath, he asked me, why are you in my botany class, my botany lab? And I said, well, you know, I, I've grown up in farming. I'm planting vineyards. And when he heard that, he said, you've got to be a part of my wine appreciation course. And I told him no. And I said, my mother would be opposed to that. Uh, and so he said, well, what, you're planting, you're planting vineyards for wine, wine grapes for, for New York. How is it that uh, that squares? So I said, well, here's my dad's phone number. You can discuss that with him. So my, my father basically um, said he could be a part of your wine appreciation course uh, as long as you don't tell his mom. <laughs> and so, so ba but basically th that, that put my father and Father McGrath in contact and the two of them began to sort of like a, a collusion to send me out to Davis and study wine there. And I think both, both men felt that um, that would be a better course or a more interesting course than med school. So um, when did your mom find out that you weren't going to med school uh, and that you were going to learn about wine? Well, you know, all this thing worked out really smoothly because um, that same summer, which is the summer of 1975, uh, after graduation, uh, I came back to Notre Dame and uh, I was married there in the Basilica. And so my, you know, so we did the whole wedding in, in South Bend, Indiana. And after that, I said, well, we're gonna, my, my dad will just tell your mom, you're gonna take a honeymoon out to California. And so that's what we had. In fact, we were taking a honeymoon out to California. It just wasn't, we weren't coming back to New York. So my father uh, simply said, when you get out to Davis, give me a call and I'll tell your mother. And that's how she found out. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, the Steve Jobs of wine, Paul Hobbs, as we discuss how someone from a teetotaling household became a winemaking legend. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Paul Hobbs, discussing how mentors changed his life's course. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast 
on Apple, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. So, Paul, you're at uh, UC Davis. I think you did your master's thesis on the characteristics of French oak, which caught the eye of a Napa, Napa Valley icon. It must have been an amazing experience for someone so young to work on a groundbreaking project like Opus One. What was that? I mean, yeah. what was that like and what did it mean to you? Well, it's pretty heady, Dan. I mean, particularly uh, since I had joined the Mandavi organization uh, just one year or a year and a half prior to the formation of the joint venture between Mouton Rothschild and Robert, Manda Robert Mandavi. And so I was still very much a green uh, sprout, if you will, in terms of an apprentice, essentially winemaker. Uh, Mr. Mandavi felt that I would be an additive to the, the Mandavi team, given my chemistry background at Notre Dame and, and UC Davis. And he felt that, that the work that I had done on French oak and, and so on was going to be additive. And so he, he appointed me to the inaugural winemaking team with his son, Tim. And, uh, and essentially, uh, once we, we consummated the deal and began the first meetings in, in uh, Oakville, in Napa Valley, uh, the French were not very interested in talking about chemistry. <laughs> so, <laughs> So essentially, I got uh, a seat at the table without much to do in terms of the French. And um, so Mr. Mandavi's Italian background miscalculated the French uh, <laughs> pursuit of winemaking, I suppose. You know, we were very much Berkeley, you know, this questioning kind of uh, approach to winemaking, which was derived initially from UC Berkeley before it moved to Davis where the French were much more, this is a craft, and we just carry on the same craft from year to year. And I think that was the rub. Hmm. This is Dan Hesse. You, you are listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with Paul Hobbs discussing how he chose winemaking as a career. So you later went to work at CME, which got bought out by LVMH, the kind of the luxury group, how did the culture change at CME after after that acquisition, and and what did you do about it? Yes, well, that was I joined CME in '85, and and then I believe roughly somewhere in 1987, LVMH, which is now the world, well, I believe then was the world's largest luxury company, was formed in '87, and I was thrilled. Frankly, uh, we were owned by Shefflin and Somerset out of New York which was the import arm of Moet Hennessy products. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity to, to work for a multinational, whereas Mandavi was a family owned and we didn't have much international distribution. But what happened was uh, I was roughly in my mid thirties. Um, and what happened uh, was that I was kicked up into more of an executive role. And so during the day, my daylight, the daytime hours, I was working too much in the offices and not enough out, out on the floor of the winery or in the vineyards. And that, I couldn't see a way out of that. And I was also at an impasse in terms of my career. And that led me to start thinking about, well, at the age of 35, it's a pretty good time, or 34 is a pretty good time to, if I'm going to 
do something and strike out on my own. I was pretty fiercely independent. I picked that up from my father. This was the time, you know, I, I shouldn't wait too long. And so, but I was struggling with how to, to make that happen, Dan. So that, that was my dilemma is, well, okay, I don't really want to go back into the California wine scene as I, I've worked at Mondavi and see me two, two of the best in those, in that particular era. And I thought, well, this is the time to launch my own, my own business, my own career. And that's kind of where my head was at at that moment. Well, you know, what you described, you know, I had previous guests on the show, you know, Admiral uh, Mullen, who was chair of the Joint Chiefs in the Navy, um, Admiral Allen, who has come down to the U.S. Coast Guard, Bill Zollers, who was the CEO at a uh, long time at, at big company YRC. And all of them, when they talk about the, the key to their success, it was getting out in the field, getting out of headquarters, doing the real work, getting to know the business. And I always kind of felt that way during my career. Actually, my nickname it, uh, was Captain Kirk um, <laughs> because they said, you know, he didn't want to be at Starfleet Command. He wanted to be out fighting Klingons. And that was, you know, that, yeah. that, that's so true. But it's, uh, but I think it's, I think it's very true. Um, you know, actually, um, you know, I encourage, you know, young managers to really get to know, you know, any business they're a part of, to take different jobs and different disciplines, you know, on the front lines. Because, you know, with that, um, you know, experience comes comes confidence, which is really crucial, I think, in decision making, especially if you, once you become an executive, you have yeah. to be decisive. And if you really know, you know, your business, you're you know, you have that confidence and you don't wait. You know, you don't wait for more studies. You don't wait for more data. You use the data that's there, but you go make mm -hmm. a call. Paul, you exude confidence. You really do. Where where did your confidence come from? <laughs> well, I think you've touched on it a bit. And, you know, I, I always felt like uh, the most important thing is to, to work from the ground up. So actually what, you know, when I started at Robert Mondavi, I didn't start off as a winemaker. And many of my colleagues graduating from Davis in the master's program went right on to, into the winemaking title, running wineries. And I, I didn't feel, frankly, that I had that, I was ready to do that. So I worked from the ground up, in fact, starting in the laboratory. And then I did a double stint at Robert Mondavi, working 40 hours in the laboratory and then 40 hours in maintenance, learning how to fix and repair winery equipment and understand how it works. And I think that just building the framework or the groundwork sort of like a master of anything, I think that 10,000 hour thing comes into play and that would give me confidence. I felt my education, but uh, there also just, I suppose, I mean, it's not like I always, every, in every situation felt confident. <laughs> and I must say, um, so I think the only thing is that how to become, uh, how to make fear a friend. I think that was also uh, how to overcome uncomfortable situations. And, and, and that was, Part of what launched me into an international career. So, by the way, on the confidence side, I think um, we were talking once, and I think we were you were with kind of uh, LVMH and CME, and you were on a trip to Portugal, and you were, I think, you know, tasting ports uh, in a kind of a blind. Tell me about that. Well, that that particular situation, we were with the Moet Chandon Group. 
and Hennessy Group. And that was a trip organized by them to one of their properties in Portugal. But this particular night, we were at Quinta do Naval, and Philippe Coulomb, who was the head of the Moet team, uh, well, hosted a dinner, and he put an old port out on the, but was all blind, of course, and asked who could identify what it was in the, in the glass. And I just happened to taste the wine, but this is also because of the training that I had at Robert Mondavi. We did so much tasting of wines from all over the world to benchmark. And so I developed an international palate. So I was quickly raised my hand and said, I knew what it was. And he said, you damn Americans, <laughs> <laughs> which was an interesting, uh, but I think was very telling as well, because and I've had friends tell me that some of the owners of some of the top chateau, for example, in Bordeaux, have said, well, actually, their fathers that only let them taste their own wines. They didn't know what the other, the only way they could find out what the other, their competitors' wine tasted like was to leave their their family, maybe even go to another country. And, and that way they could try if, you know, the wines of, of their competitors or the, at least their neighbors. Well, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, winemaking icon, Paul Hobbs. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcasts anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860 The Answer. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I am talking with world-famous winemaker Paul Hobbs about career choices. So, uh, Paul, we were talking about confidence, and you have to have a lot of confidence to pick the projects around the world that you have. You've been a trailblazer at bringing to the world's attention kind of obscure or forgotten wine regions with really unusual varietals, at least to me. You know, I think I know wine, and God, you I, you introduced me to ones I've never heard of like Adelo in Spain, Areni in Ar Armenia, Malbec, you know, actually in France and Cahors, and actually Malbec, you know, 35 years ago when you went to, you know, we, we know a lot about it now, but 35 years ago in Argentina, uh, not so much. Why do you venture out uh, into these unknown kind of regions of the world instead of kind of playing it safe in the kind of better known wine appellations? I think, uh, Dan, what drives me to some degree is just the adventure of going to places that are lesser known and the opportunity. I mean, when I, I, when I first visited, you know, some of the premier areas of Europe, for example, Burgundy or Bordeaux, well, that's pretty much already done. How are you going to stand out? If you want recognition, you've got to go someplace to make something happen where there's fewer, less of a crowd. And I, you know, it's a lonelier lifestyle. There's no question, but there's there's so much satisfaction working in a place where you're embraced and you're helping uh, bring something. Provided, of course, that it has the attributes to make, you know, something good. And that's one of the. I mean, I think it was for all those reasons that I chose to go to places that were lesser known. Well, your parents were kind of adventurers as well. I think. Were your parents like, I don't know, traveling across Russia during the communist years? I think even 
Bre- Brezhnev years? <laughs> that was uh, the winter of 1974. They, well, actually, they had they had initially planned that they would send the, the three oldest, meaning my brother Lindsay, my brother Greg, and I, around across Russia. But then they decided to do it for themselves. So they they took off from Toronto airport and they made a trip around the world. And, and But most of that time, over a month, was the winter they spent in 1974 crossing Russia. And some of that was on the Trans-Siberian Railway, of course. And so only years, many years later, did I get to Novosibirsk, for example, which is the center of Russia. And it was just kind of cool to follow my foot, my, some of the regions that my parents had traveled. But they were very, my father in particular was an adventure seeker, and he would farm out my parents would basically farm out the kids, all 11 of us in this particular case. And we would just get farmed out to other families. And sometimes my father wouldn't give my mother much notice. Uh, usually it was like <laughs> lunch, you'd tell her, we're going to Mexico, get rid of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We are talking with winemaker Paul Hobbs about building confidence. So, uh, you know, I mentioned Argentina and you played a huge role, Paul, in establishing Argentina as a country that makes premium wines, you know, the quality of which would would work well in the export market. Um, Is it true? Do I understand that you're being asked to participate in the bicentennial of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Argentina that's coming up? It came as a bit of a surprise to me. But, yes, that's what's coming up. Uh, this this year we're celebrating 200 years of relations between the two countries, Argentina and U.S. So, yeah, I feel honored to be a part of that. And our wines from Argentina, of course, from Unicobos. Well, congratulations. So, uh, so Paul, how do you define success? Well, that's a big that's a big word. <laughs> I think I would say it's twofold in my case. I mean, success, uh, maybe first I would put that whatever I'm doing, I wanted to make the lives of others better. So some form of contribution or service, I think, is is a critical factor from my point of view. And secondly, it's my family. And I think there is just providing for my family. But, you know, also just, you know, being a caregiver in that sense, but also is setting them up for success, if you will, uh, helping the family unit do the best they can and being, uh, let's say, uh, generous and helpful in our community, doing good things for the community. Greater way, and smaller yeah. community, of course. In some cases, I'm talking a very local community, but other cases, a broader community and even international community. Well, I think it's a great way to think about it. You know, all, everybody doesn't think about it that way. And, um, you know, it gets me to the to another subject, which is which is happiness. It's surprising how many successful people, you know, people we would consider successful and the world would consider successful really um, aren't happy. Um, how, you know, how would you define happiness? Well, I, I find that happiness comes from a certain sense of fulfillment and uh, that kind of ties back to success. You know, if you're able to bring happiness and 
help other people's lives to be in, in betterment of others, I think then that for me is joy, which is a synonym for happiness, I suppose, a, a sense of fulfillment. It puts a kick in your step, you know, if you know what I mean. It just you know, a sense a lightness of being. And those, I mean, it's more of a feeling, but it's just like when you wake up in the morning, you want to embrace the day. You know, you get up with gusto, and then I know I'm happy. But I've also noticed that to, to really know happiness requires being, let's say, uncomfortable. And, you know, perhaps, um, you know, at times a struggle and, and you know, facing fear and facing your fears. So it's not always about, I mean, I, I guess happiness for me is um, only really recognized through a struggle and a little bit of stress. And I think that ties to grapevines very nicely because if you want good, good quality fruit, we have to, and to build character, I think you've got to, you've got to stress them a bit. That's you're becoming more and more like your vines. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it uh, that way. You know, I think a lot of people, I think it's an important, um, you know, a kind of an interesting subject of, you know, success versus happiness. Um, you know, I, I find that, you know, people often kind of conflate, you know, conflate happiness with pleasure, you know, I see pleasure as something kind of short-term, immediate, usually more of the physical. Happiness is more mental. Um, you know, you have ups and downs, but it's kind of longer lasting, almost, you know, innate. Uh, you know, I find that relationships are, are really important to me for, you know, for happiness. So, you know, kind of to use your wine analogy, you know, pleasure is uh, is drinking a really good glass of, of Paul Hobbs wine by yourself, uh, and just in, enjoying it and happiness is kind of sharing it with, you know, with good conversation with somebody you care about who also appreciates good wine, where you kind of enjoy it together. That's more, it's, it's bigger, it's, it's broader. It's more of a sense yeah. of, of happiness. It's almost like, a, um, I know this is a G rated show, but you know, it's a difference between kind of sex and lovemaking, you know, sex being pleasure, but, you know, lovemaking, you know, creates, I think, is, is happiness if it's more than that, if it's more mm -hmm. of a, you know, something, something kind of mental, uh, if you will. But it's, yeah. uh, but I, I, um, it has you know, I like the way you think about it. And richer and deeper uh, meaning, I think. And yeah, I like that very much. You well, know, it's funny because also happiness is kind of like a, you know, I, I find that, you know, being alone and just either watching the clouds or sharing that moment with my children or my wife or others, you know, we were just watching a cloud transform from a rabbit into some other kind of creature the other day with the kids. While we were driving. And that brought so much joy and, and, you know, that sharing. But also there's just the richness when you're alone and the creativity that can come from that. Well, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, winemaker Paul Hobbs, discussing happiness. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentor's Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with winemaking icon Paul Hobbs about success. So, Paul, with wineries all over the world in different hemispheres, you know, north, south, east, west, different time zones, 
that's got to be a tremendous amount of, we'll call it demand on your time. Plus you're a consulting winemaker to like roughly 15 wineries at any one time. I think you've had a hundred in your career. Are you able to maintain what's called a life work balance and as a result, achieve happiness? Well, I think uh, in the traditional sense, no. <laughs> I think more today than, but there was a period, Dan, where I, I plunged uh, full, fully into my work. And, um, you know, apart from my older daughter, who was 28, I mean, she was really my only other person, uh, you know, but otherwise I was in my life. I mean, I was just fully immersed in my work and um, it wasn't what one would call balanced situation. I didn't watch any television. I rarely went out to dinner with anyone. Uh, weekends, everything was devoted, but I felt that was necessary at least for a period of time. And it didn't, and I was very happy during that because I felt I knew what I was doing. It wasn't like, and you know, I was buried in it or it wasn't, I didn't choose it. I chose it. <laughs> and that was, and, and I felt good about it. And it, but, but but people around me would say, well, he's just, an, you know, I didn't get invited to any weddings, <laughs> birthday parties, nothing. <laughs> people gave up on me. And I was gone a lot, too. I mean, not only was I, I was on the move all the time. And so, you know, with United Airlines, for example, I amassed over 4 million miles of flying. And, and, and it wasn't that I was looking to target. By the way, that you, was you never a, a goal. You get a free plane with that, don't you? Is that, <laughs> isn't that where you get your own plane? The aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, you mentioned, especially in your early years, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who are, who have achieved the pinnacle like you have, whatever their profession is, that in their early years, they worked around the clock before they had families or what have you. They got ahead. They learned mm -hmm. the business. Um, and, you know, and I actually just a couple of days ago, uh, Diane and I were out on the golf course with a young lady who had you know, recently graduated from college and we were giving her advice, pick something you love yeah. because if you love it, you're happy while you're working. I mean, I, I was happier working 80 hours a week in something I love doing than 40 hours a week in a job I didn't like. I mean, that's the most important thing. So, you know, this notion of life work, ba you know, balance, I think you're right. It, it changes during life. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, when kids come along, uh, you know, in, in our case, my whole life then became work and kids. And I gave up other things that I like, you know, like golf, tennis, TV, they all went away. Um, but thank God, I think like you, I loved my work. So that yeah. it, it was, I was happy at work and then I was happy at home, but you do have to, you know, you do have obligations as you get older, as yes. you described. Yeah. Timing is everything. <laughs> So this is Dan Hesse. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show, and we are with wine entrepreneur Paul Hobbs discussing happiness. So, um, you know, you manage, you know, wineries across the world with, you know, different histories, different cultures, different grapes, different markets. How do you maintain the Paul Hobbs brand or what makes them Hobbs wines with this much mm -hmm. diversity? Well, I think that, in fact, was one of the most challenging things was the, how do you have the ability to take something that you you first we first grew here in the U.S. and California and then take that to a foreign country where cultures are different. And 
And so that that truly, and when you have limited resources, I mean, for example, I started my the winery I have in Argentina with 70,000 US dollars with a partner. I mean, together we put in 35 and we started a wine company that today is quite significant in Argentina and probably the luxury quality leader for the country. And so to start that in 1998 and have it grow into what it's grown today took a lot of effort. And most of that is organizational. I think what I put a lot of focus on was obviously finding the right people, but in the beginning, you know, choosing your partners and the relationships, those are critical that you mentioned earlier, Dan. And then, and then teaching them, I mean, it's like transferring information uh, and teaching them. And they were, so I started with a young couple uh, and I found that to be a very good, I was fortunate. I wanted a young couple that had not been corrupted or had a lot of baggage. And uh, <clears throat> with that way, I could kind of teach them. They were hungry to learn and they put in the effort and they could teach the method and methodology that was appropriate for, for the way that I looked at, at wine and how wine is made and how the, we farm and et cetera. So there's so many aspects to that, but I think that's creating a culture mm-hmm. and it's, it's a tremendous amount of organization. And I've used this core uh, model, if you will, that I built for Argentina and that's what's taken me to other parts of the world. But you can only do it with investment of time. You've got to show up. <laughs> that's the other thing. That's just you've got to be there and you've got to be there with enough regularity so that they don't because you're actually working in a culture that's not your culture. and You're creating a culture within the culture. So you've been called, Paul, the uh, the Steve Jobs of wine. And I think they could have just as easily called you the Michael Jordan of wine. I remember visiting your winery a few years ago. And you said, oh, yesterday, you know, Michael Jordan was here uh, and he's play pals with my with my young daughter. Um, can you tell he's us really, about that? <laughs> well, yeah, he came to the winery. I think it was kind of as COVID was winding down and there was a NASCAR race, which he's involved in NASCAR in the, here in Sonoma. So he was in the neighborhood. He stopped by the winery and my girls. Well, they, he's very playful. He loves he loves children. And uh, so he's sitting there drinking wine with his his NASCAR drivers there and, you know, his entourage. And the girls are under the table trying to lace his tap, knocking his foot and, and trying to tie his shoelaces together. <laughs> That's and they're marveling at the size of his feet, by the way. And he's grabbing them or trying to grab them. And so there was a little cat and mouse kind of game going on. They were having a good time. That's funny. Well, if he was wearing Air Jordans, those were valuable shoes. Um, <laughs> they didn't get them off him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm a big sci-fi reader and I've read almost, you know, I, I've, I've just read so much sci-fi over the world, over the years. And I don't know if you'd call it sci-fi, but uh, George Orwell's 1984. Um, tell us about your year of 1984. That's interesting. You should mention 1984. I have so many connections with that year, but it was a it was a, I think there are certain years that just kind of come together like the alignments of the planet. And uh, nine, 1984, I, in the summer of 1984, I, I served on a jury in Napa Valley, Superior Court murder trial. Uh, it was Thomas Consgard was the Superior Court judge. And I got picked 
at the end of a month-long trial, as and I was the youngest member of the jury. I didn't want to be on the jury and because harvest was coming at Mondavi. Nevertheless, I got picked as foreman. And that that was a challenge for me because I, I was more of a reclusive person. I did not want to leave a team, a team of 11 other people. So I, but they forced me to do it. And the remaining, the other jurors all agreed I was the only person they wanted to leave this thing. So I called for a vote and it was six, six split. At any rate, it was quite an experience. It took us three days of del deliberation and finally a rereading of the points of law before we finally came to a decision. And according to Consgard, who had been 25 years on the bench, that was one of the most celebrated trials of his career. And shortly after that, he retired. So that, that was, that was a, a very formative experience for me. Later that same year, November of 1984, I made a trip to Europe. And in that particular situation, I was invited by Peter Hearing and his daughter, Crystal Hearing, he had sent his daughter to Robert Mondavi Winery as part of, he was YPO. And so I had, they invited me to have dinner with Queen Margaret. I went to a fox hunt. After that, I left them to go to Hanover and spent an, a night, one of the wildest nights of my life in, in Hanover, Germany with Heinz Wetzler, who had been thrown out of the, the, the scorpions. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, a, a band, a rock band uh, during that era. Probably thrown out for partying too much. Uh, so. <laughs> well, we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, the Steve Jobs of Wine, Paul Hobbs, discussing success and happiness. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with guest mentor, winemaking icon, Paul Hobbs, discussing success. So you've had success all around the world. You have wineries, as I mentioned earlier, we've discussed in each hemisphere, north, south, kind of east and west, uh, with changes in you know what we're seeing in weather we're just talking about today you know you're in you're in sonoma and it's raining for like the 18th gazillion day day you know up there this year it's like rain constantly and it's been dry are you having to change your winemaking plans the grapes you grow the wines you make based upon changes in weather oh yes yeah we we adapt to the situation and and the Weather always, uh, being in the farming business, I actually feel blessed in California because despite all the changes or all the things that are happening, um, it's still relatively mild compared to, let's say, a continental environment. For example, Europe has been much more challenging. In some vintages, we weren't even able to make wine, for example, uh, near Bordeaux in Cahors. Uh, well, they've been so difficult either with frost or too much rain or this or that. But yes, uh, the fact, yes and no. I mean, in, in reality, grapevines are very resilient. And mm -hmm. so especially older vines, once they're well established to their site, they kind of, and the changes are, well, I guess we would perceive them as rapid, but I think for plants, they're not that 
uh, rapid. But yes, we would modify our farming according to any number of climatic shifts. So that's interesting. So the older the, the vines are, perhaps the more resilient they are, almost like people, you know, been around the block a few times, you know, like a, a lot of young people in the last year, they'd never seen the market turned down. <laughs> and now they're getting the experience and learning how to manage that. Yeah, that's a hardening process. I think it's, it's yeah. essential. So um, did I read that you were once a competitive ballroom dancer? Is that true? Well, uh, yes. Uh, how did you get that? <laughs> I I, I've done my research. <laughs> uh, well, I was I didn't do very much of it, but um, I was taking some Arthur Murray cl classes and then I, you know, I enjoyed it quite a lot. And it was um, but it was really before I started. Well, it was actually in the early part of my work in Argentina. And I was quite interested in the tango dance and some of the folklore dances that they were doing in Argentina. And, I, and there was a, I had a Brazilian teacher actually, who was teaching me tango, which was quite, <laughs> so I made a few, mostly in the Bay Area. I didn't really leave the Bay Area. Well, uh, thanks, Paul, for, for joining us uh, today. I feel like having a glass of Paul Hobbs wine right now. <laughs> Paul has described the foundational role mentors played in his development and how one can work very long hours and also achieve happiness. Check us out on TheMentorsRadio.com. You can also listen to us online, on any device, at any time, on any podcast platform like Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Join us next week at the same time for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.